welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Well, for all of my life, I've heard people say, when I was a kid, and then they would tell a story about some antiquated uh, time or culture, and I always thought that was so sad that people talked about their childhood that way, that they had gotten that old. And here we are. When I was a kid... Things were a little bit different. We didn't have Hulu. We didn't have Amazon Prime. We didn't have Netflix. What we had was Channel 8, and Channel 8 did not play anything for kids except for Saturday mornings. So if you wanted needless entertainment, you had to go to your stash of Disney movies. Anybody else with me? You know, the VHS tapes in the big plastic containers, and you watch the same one like 38 times because you only had six of them? Uh, that, was, that was the childhood for many of us. And, and there was a pattern to these movies that we watched over and over and over again. Disney is now shifting away from this, but the pattern of the old movies was always this, that there was a character, they were good and they were wholesome and they were likable and they were pure of heart. And they were put in a situation where they were confronted with a character who had evil intentions. And so just, just to name a few of you, if you go back and look at Cinderella, Cinderella had an evil stepmother that was characterized by selfishness. Snow White was confronted by an evil witch who was characterized by jealousy. Robin Hood was always fighting with the Sheriff of Nottingham because the Sheriff of Nottingham was greedy. And 101 Dalmatians, my favorite, or least favorite, I should say, villain Corella de Vil was known for her cruelty to want to make a coat out of puppies. And in Aladdin, you had Jafar, who was hungry for power. But my favorite movie, and the reason it's become my favorite is because as I've grown, I see Christian themes in this movie. My favorite movie from my childhood was Lion King. You guys know Lion King, right? One of the best movies ever. I've seen the cartoon. I've seen the uh, live action adaption. I've seen the Broadway play. Phenomenal story. And in this particular movie, the story, what you have is you have a good and righteous king of this pride of lions in Africa named Mufasa. And he's training in the beginning of the movie. He's training and he's growing his son Simba to one day be a good and righteous king. But then we see the villain come in, the villain that we all love to hate, the angry uncle, the brother to Mephasa, a, a lion named Scar. And Scar spends his time and he, he's jealous of what Mufasa has. He wants the power. He wants control of the pride. And so he devises a plan to both kill Mufasa and run off Simba. And as he does that, he gains control of the kingdom and the kingdom suffers. And even as a little kid, you're watching this and you're just nailed to your scenes like, when will the goodness come back? When will good triumph over evil? When, when will Scar get what's due to him? And at the end of the movie, triumphantly, grown up, Simba comes back and he fights for his kingdom. Now, why do I bring that up? Because there's something about us, something about us that longs for good to triumph over evil. It's the reason our entire entertainment industry exists is because they, they, they tell these stories of good triumphing over evil. Look at Star Wars. The good side of the force versus the bad side of the force. Look at Marvel movies, the superheroes versus the evil aliens. We want good to triumph over evil. Why is that? Why does every human across history tell us stories about good triumphing over evil? It's because within us, we were born to desire and to live in goodness. And yet we experience an evil and broken world. 
we've been in a series called Bookends, and what we're doing is we're just looking at the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation, and we're trying to get an eagle-eye view of this Bible and what the theme of this Bible is. And what we've seen so far in chapter 1, God introduces himself as a good ruler, as a, te- or as a creator who creates everything good. In Genesis chapter 2, we're introduced to the creation of mankind who was made precious and in the image of God. And as we get to ch- Genesis chapter 3, this is the turning point of the Bible. This is where things change. This is where the story introduces the conflict that we now all live in the midst of it. From, from this point forward, we will see two things constantly throughout man's history. We will see the enemy attacking man, and we will see our innate desire and want to sin. See, at the core of our story is the conflict between good and evil in the Bible with a love story written within. So if you got your Bibles, read with me. This is Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to read verse 1 and then we're going to come back to it. But listen to this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Your first take home truth this morning is the enemy opposes God and hates man. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, some of you grew up in Sunday school and you like, you know this story backwards and forwards and you know who the serpent was. Now, if somebody was just to come up to me and was like, hey, did you know the first people a snake talked to him? I'd be like, that's a fairy tale. That's up there with Cruella de Vil and the Dalmatians. That's up there with Aladdin in his cave of many riches or whatever it was. But it's not. This is a truth. What we see here in this story is represented a physical animal, the snake. But we see something about this physical animal that tells me that it's not just an animal. We see that this animal, this serpent, was cunning, which means the ability to get what you want through deceit. And we see that this animal could talk. You can't look at the scripture and say, well, in the beginning, all the animals in Adam talked all the time. That's not true. So what we see with the serpent here is this is not a story about a a talking snake, although there was a physical snake here. This is a story about something more. Scripture later identifies the serpent in chapter 3 with Satan. You see that nowhere better than in Revelation where it says, Satan, that serpent of old. We, we see that this is a being who comes into the story, who comes into the reality of the Bible, who has a purpose. Now, I'm going to be honest with y'all. I got into this this week, and I was like, who is Satan? And I was like going through scriptures. I had like a list of 85 scriptures, and I was like, here's all the things you need to know about Satan. And I realized I don't want to spend that much time on Satan. He's not who, here, he's not who we are here to worship this morning. But we do need to know who he is because he is a cunning and a crafty enemy who is still working to tear down God's kingdom, who is working to tear down humankind. So we do need to know who he is. But I want to go through this very quickly. If you've got your Bibles, well, actually, you probably don't have time to turn there. But if you want to look at this later, this is Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14. It speaks of Lucifer, which is Satan. Listen to this. This tells you the backstory of who this, this Satan character is. It says, How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So what we have in this story is very quickly a story of an angel, probably the top angel in heaven, if not at least one of the top three. And he's thrown out of heaven for what reason? Because he takes his eyes off the glory of God and he puts his eyes on himself. Your second take-home truth is the enemy is jealous of God. Take-home truth number two. 
see in verse 14 of Isaiah, what you see is Satan saying to himself, I will be like the Most High. He looks at God. He looks at the Creator who created him. He looks at God who he was created to serve. And he says, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I want your glory. I want your power. I want your throne. This is what we call the sin of pride. When we talk about pride, we're not talking about Razorback pride. Southerner pride. Pioneer pride. They pay half of our bills now. I guess I'm going to soften on that a little bit with my wife working there. No, we're not talking about that. Pride is when we take our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on ourselves. And we start thinking about how good and how glorified we are. And for this reason, Satan did this. He was cast to the earth. And Ephesians 2 tells us that he is now the prince of this world, that he is ruling here. And as he is cast in this world, roaming around, what does he find? None other than you and me, mankind, human beings. And I want you to know something. Satan is not just a little red guy that's a cartoonized, cartoon version of, of something. Satan is a real being with a deep, undying hatred of God. And guess who you remind him of? Because you were made in the image of God. You were made to reflect God's character and his goodness in the world. And he finds us here and immediately he hates us and he begins working a plan to destroy us. Back in, back in Genesis 3, let's, let's keep reading this here since we've now introduced him. We're going to start again at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat, that your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband and uh, husband with her and he ate. Now what this story does for us is it tells us about the fall of mankind into sin. But it also does something very important for us. If we're going to spend our, our existence combating this creature, this being who wants to destroy us, we better know how to fight him. And there's no better way than to fight somebody than to know what they're going to do next. These verses, in my opinion, give us Satan's playbook. The same things that he does in Genesis chapter 3, he uses to tear man down today. You guys know what a playbook is, right? College football is up on us, folks. And we're rejoicing today because the Razorbacks won yesterday, and we may not rejoice next week because they didn't look very good in doing it. But... In college football, what they have is you'll have an offensive coordinator. This is the person. They come up with a plan. They said, I'm going to attack the enemy. I'm going to attack the defense of the other team this way. And they carry with them this little play sheet. And it has all of the plays and when they want to use the plays and in what situations they want to lose the plays. I heard this story once and I loved it of a time that somebody lost a play sheet. In 1999, it was the Red River Rivalry. If you're not a college football fan, let me tell you, that is Texas and Oklahoma. These two teams hate each other and they play every year at the Texas State Fair. And one of the lower coaches for Texas was walking down the sidelines and he looks down, he sees a piece of paper and he picks it up. And what did he find? He said, this is the call sheet. This is the scorecard. This is the play calls for Oklahoma for this game. And he quickly puts it under his shirt and he runs over to his sideline and he starts showing it to all the other defensive coaches. Here's what they're going to do. Here's how they're going to attack us. 
And they began to adjust their entire defense for the expectation of what their enemy team was going to do. Now, their playbook was incomplete because what they didn't realize is the offensive coordinator at this time for Oklahoma was the great Mike Leach, who died last year. Mike Leach is a character. They called him the pirate. You know why? Because they'd ask him about football and he would talk about pirates. He was insane. And he had made a fake playbook and dropped it on the sideline hoping they would find it. In the first plays of that game, Oklahoma went up 17-0 to zero because he was cunning and he was willing to lie. But listen, what the Bible gives us today is Satan's real playbook. It sheds lights. It sheds a light on how he lies and how he moves in us, both back when he moved with Adam and Eve and how he moves with us. So I want to go through the playbook real quick. Your third take-home truth, we're going to go through these. Number three, point A, the enemy tricks us into sin by introducing point A is doubt. You notice the first thing Satan does is he comes to Eve and he says, did God really say that? Are you sure you heard him right? Because that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. Did God really say don't eat of that fruit of the tree? Did God really say that, that we, we shouldn't do all of these different things? Did God really say to give him some of your money? Did God really say there's importance to being in church? Did God really say that, that marriage was between a man and a woman? Did God really say all of these things? That's what Satan does is he introduces doubt and he looks at us and goes, you're outlandish. You can't really believe that God cares about that. You can't really believe that that's what God wants you to do. You can't really believe he would ask you to do that. And he'll introduce doubt into what we know to be right and wrong. Now, Eve gets a bum rap in this story. And I guess if you pull all of mankind into sin, you know, you're probably kind of really messed up there. But listen to what Eve said. Eve, to her credit, replies to Satan's trying to put doubt into her life by quoting God. God said we should not eat of it or we will die. The second thing we'll see Satan do, the enemy tricks us into sin by introducing point B is an alternate truth. You'll see there that truth is in quotation marks because there's only one ultimate truth. There's no such thing as an alternate truth. There is a fake alternate truth. And so Satan begins to introduce this alternate truth to God's truth, this fake truth. He, he rebuts and goes, God said you would die. You won't actually die. And we see God, or Satan, begin to question God's character and begin to create in Eve a question of God's character. You notice Satan didn't just rewrite morals. The first thing he does is he says, are you sure you can trust this God? Because here's what Satan can do. If he can get you to have a disbelief in actual truth, he can get you to believe any fake truth that he wants to. That's where he begins. Are you, are you sure God really said that? Are you sure you can trust him? And Eve processes this, and while she's thinking of it, he catapults into his next thing, point C. The enemy tricks us by introducing animosity. What he then goes on and says, God didn't say, God said you would die. God doesn't want you to be like him. What, what Satan says is, God lied. God is trying to hide something from you. See, what Satan will do, if he cannot get you to doubt what God said, is he will introduce animosity between you and God. Look into our world today. Where God is clear on an issue, it creates hatred for God. It's the work of Satan. His fingerprints are all over it. 
And so he'll, he'll sit here and say, this, this God that you're worshiping, this God that you're following, he has something good, something that you would like, something that you would desire, but God doesn't want you to have it. Why? Because God is bad and he created you this rule to keep you from getting something good. Why don't you show him, break the rule and just take that good thing? That's how Satan does it. And then he puts the cherry on the top Satan's last bit, point, whatever, we're on point D, is, is he will uh, hit you with a promise. And you see point D, that Satan will hit you in your pride. What does he say to Eve? He says, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Tired of following him, you're tired of his rules. Oh, Eve, you could be like God. You get to decide what's wrong tired of following God's rules. Brian, you can be like God. You can be the one that gets to decide good from evil. Now, there's two things that, that interest me about that. Number, number one, the thing that interests me about that is, what an empty promise. Satan comes to the creation that is created to be like God, that is created in God's image, who was already like God, and he says, you can be God. What a, what a smooth talker, what a liar, that he, he would promise us something that, number one, only God could give, and he would promise us something that actually steals from us. This is the evil cunning of Satan, is that he wants to steal what God has given us by promising us something else. The second thing that interests me about this is what he pushes humans to do is to pursue his own desires. Remember Isaiah earlier? What, what did Satan say? He said, I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like the Most High. And he comes to Adam and Eve, and what does he say? You can be like God. Satan pulls humans into his own delusion, and he tempts us with his own temptation. And here's ultimately Satan's plan. I want you to know today that you were created by a good God, and you were created to be good, and you've messed up, and you've sinned. But at the core of your being, you were created to reflect the nature of God. And Satan looks at that, he says, I don't want the nature of God reflected. And so when he calls us into sin, what are we actually doing? We're questioning God, we're putting ourselves above him. Satan takes creatures who were created to reflect the image of God, and he makes us reflect his nature. That's what sin is. Sin is when we reject the nature of God and we begin to reflect the nature of Satan, questioning God, rebelling against God, and rejecting him. Why does he do that? Because he hates God, and because we remind him of God, he hates us, and he wants to destroy us. In 1 Peter, it says that Satan is roaming around like a lion. Not a good lion, not Mufasa. He's roaming around like Scar, looking for whom he may devour and destroy in John chapter 10, it says that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And here's what Satan knows. Satan knows that sin destroys creation because he experienced it. Back in Isaiah 14 here, this is, this is verse 15. After everything else, the, all the I wills, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds that will be like the most high. Verse 15. Yet you, speaking to Satan, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. That word is death or hell to the lowest depths of the pit. See, Satan knows what he's done. He knows what the consequences are, and he wants to pull us into it. You want to destroy somebody? Destroy them with what you know destroyed you. Satan is like a kid who skips school, and he knows he's going to get in trouble. He knows he's going to be bad, but he calls his best friend and says, you want to skip school with me? Why? Because he doesn't want to be in trouble alone. He doesn't want the temptations, or I'm sorry, the consequences alone. 
So as we continue in the story back in Genesis 3, what does this do to us? Read with me verses 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not? And the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So as you look at this story, what we see is Eve falls into sin. Sin is a fancy word that we use in church. It simply means sin, or Eve falls into imperfection. Eve does things that are outside of God's character, and Eve does things that are outside of God's instructions, disobedient. God gave them one rule. Don't eat of that tree. What did they do? They broke one rule. And here's what we understand about this. Satan's temptation for Adam and Eve was, I want you to break the rules. I want you to reject God so that you can have something for yourself. Your fourth take-home truth, number four, is sin is a rejection of God's goodness, right to rule, and truth. This all centers around Eve and this tree that was forbidden. And today there are things that are forbidden. If you read your Bible, your Bible will give you instructions on what to do and what not to do. And Satan's lie is that God is stealing from you. That's what Satan used with Eve and that's what Satan uses with us. But if you look into the Bible and you look into the story, God is not stealing from Adam and Eve. God is protecting them. He, he says to them, don't eat of the tree or else you will die. But Eve's motivation was she did not believe in God's good protection. And in the same way, you and I begin to do the same thing. God, is that rule really that important? Do you really believe that to be bad? Are you trying to hide something from me? And we walk into sin and we're drug into consequences. I said earlier that Satan wanted to take mankind. He wanted to take us who reflect God's character and he wanted to create in us a character that reflects Satan. Look at what Eve does. Number one, she rejects God because she wants what God has. She sins. And what's the very next thing that she does? She goes to Adam and she pulls him down with her just the same way that Satan went to Eve to pull her down. I think there's a warning here. This is, this is not the main point. I think there's a warning here. If you are serious about your relationship with God, you cannot be with people who want to pull you into sin. If you're trying to walk away from that party lifestyle, let me tell you, you can't go to the bar with your buddies while they drink. If you're trying to keep yourself pure in your romantic relationships before marriage, you can't find yourself on a dark couch with somebody, on a couch in the dark with somebody. If you're trying to stomp out like me, you're trying to stomp out gossip in your life, you can't go to the same place everybody else eats lunch and gossips because they're going to pull you back in. Because that's what sin does. Sin wants company. And we see that here. And so we see the effects of sin. Your fifth take-home truth, point A. The effects of sin are number one, or point A, which is death. 
God created you and me as eternal beings. Uh, we are going to see the end of this physical life, not because God designed us that way, but because we rejected him and brought sin into our life. And sin will kill you. Let me tell you very carefully, the more sin that you find in your life, the more it's going to kill you both in this life and in the next. Point B on that, point 5B, is that their eyes were open to evil. You know, Adam and Eve had it made. Adam and Eve were blind to evil. Their entire existence, everything about them from the second they were created up until the point Eve decided to take hold of that fruit and eat it, the only thing that they knew, the only thing they experienced, the only thing they surrounded by was the goodness of God all the time. It's like they were at church all the time, but not the church with the judgy, angry people. Like the good part of church, where we come here and we're just happy and we praise God. That was their existence for every second of their day. And they lost it as suddenly they became exposed to and uh, gained a knowledge of evil. Which leads us to point C. Point 5C is that we see in Adam and Eve shame. See, knowledge of evil, of what is good and what is wrong in the world brings shame upon us. And every human being, listen, you may need to hear this this morning, you're not the only person in here carrying shame for something that you did, something that you wish you didn't do, something that you keep doing that you just don't know how to stop. Every human being carries shame because we are created now, we now know what good is and inherently we know what evil is. And we find in ourselves this sense of our value being taken from us when we embark on something evil. You say, well, Brian, that's fine to say to people in church, but what about the people in the world? They seem to celebrate their sin. You know why people celebrate sin and why they shove it in your face and why they want you to accept them? The reason is not because they're actually excited about it. But the reason is because they feel so much shame, they are seeking for somebody to make them feel better. And if you will just applaud my sin, if you will just embark in my sin with me, if you will just take my sin and say it's a good thing, they think it will make them feel better. But that's not true. The fourth thing, this isn't on your take-home truth. Somehow I missed it. Um, point, what would be point D, is that separation from God and others is the effect of sin. You see that their shame caused them to hide from God. They stayed away from him. And then Adam, in the first marital dispute ever, Adam throws his wife under the bus. Adam, why are you hiding? The woman. Don't lie, man. You've thought of that before. That woman. Some of the wives are looking at the husbands. All the husbands are looking dead ahead. Never thought that. My wife's an angel. Conflict between man and God and conflict between man and or mankind and mankind. And we can see the effect of that society in our life. That Satan uses that same thing, doubt, an alternate truth, animosity, and pride to pull us in the consequences of death, opening our eyes to evil, shame because of our understanding of evil, and separating us from God. I've got another picture coming up. This is, um, this is Josh Broom. And uh, I want to share with you his testimony. Now, I'm just going to warn you guys. Uh, this is a messy testimony. And tes testimonies are supposed to be messy. As a matter of fact, the messier the testimony, the better. Because that is a bigger proof of God's love for the broken. And a bigger proof of what God can do in the people that he pursues to himself. Josh Broom, in, uh, in his early life, left college, and he moved to California. 
And his plan for moving to California was he wanted to be an actor. And not just an actor in a commercial or to do some local place. He wanted to be a movie star. And at the age of 22, because you know if you haven't accomplished anything by the time you're 22, you're probably never going to accomplish it. At least that's the way he puts it. He says the age of 22 is a time when he just felt like his career was floundering. Nothing was going on. He was a starving artist, as you would say. He just felt like, I need my break. And at that point, he was approached. Let me, let me be delicate with this. He was approached by some representatives of the adult entertainment industry. We've got little ears in here. That's, that's the best I'm going to say it, okay? And they approached him and they said, hey, in, in today's modern world, if you need acting experience, you can get it in these kind of videos and in these kind of movies. You can get fame. You can get rich. You can get everything you need to move you into the future that you want. And so he said, yes. And he was pulled into this filthy industry for six years where he did over a thousand films. In that amount of time, he made a lot of money. He was celebrated. He was famous. He won awards. They have award shows for that stuff. He, he won awards in that. He had all the fame, all the money, everything. But what he found was he fell into the trap of Satan because Satan came to him and he promised him, he said, this will be good for you. And what you see is it stole everything in his life that he wanted. He found out just a few weeks after he began in this particular industry that his agent, his actual acting agent, dropped him and said, you're involved in shady stuff. We can't be associated with that. He found that he could not date because he was so ashamed of who he was and what he was doing. He could no longer connect with other human beings. He tells the story of talking to a girl and they were talking and she said to him, what's your future plans? And he said, it hit me. I didn't know how to answer because I didn't know that I had a future. And he reached a point where he had made a, uh, made a decision and set a time to take his own life. Although he was celebrated, although he was rich, although he lived in a society that said, this is good, he was full of shame. Since he left this society, or since he left this industry, he shared that over 30 of the people that he worked with have died by overdose or suicide. That is very common in this particular industry. All of the death and the shame and the hurt came because he believed the lies and he got the consequences. This is the story of sin. That God, Satan will bring to us false promises that bring us to destruction. He will bring on us shame and he will bring on us death. But there is good news in this story. There is great news in this story. There is great news going forward from this story. If you would, read with me one more time in Genesis chapter 3. I want to I reread two verses. Verses 8 and 9. Adam and Eve have fallen. They're in their sin. They're feeling their shame. They're living under the consequence of death. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? There's a verse that we use in church a lot. It's a very churchy word. That word is grace. That word means that no matter what you do, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, God passionately loves you. And in his passionate love, he will pursue you. And here you see with Adam in his life and Eve, as they are hiding from God, as they are separated from God, God comes calling, Adam, where are you? Come to me. 
See, the rest of this Bible from Genesis 3, 8 on is a story about God making right what we have made wrong. It is a story about his love and his pursuit of you and me and bringing us back to himself. And in truth, the story should have stopped at Genesis 3, 7. It should have stopped when we sinned and found shame. That should have been the end of it. But we see the first instance of grace as God begins to pursue the broken. Your last take on truth, number six, is God pursues and restores the sinful. And here's what we need to know today about Genesis chapter three. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand who God is and who Jesus is, you need to know this from Genesis chapter three is that because of our sin, there's a divide between us and God. And the shame you feel is real. And the death that you face, are faced with is real. But I want you to know this. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you've turned from God, God is not done with you. God still loves you and God pursues you. Josh left that industry, he said, through the intercession of a family member. Um, I made the decision not to end my own life. He said, several years later, I was in a gym and I saw this girl and I thought she was beautiful. He said, I walked up to her, all muscled up, and he said, hey, baby, let me put those weights up for you. She said, no, I'll do it. <laughs> but he was infatuated with her, and he began to talk with her, and he began to get to know her, and he said that they texted a lot, but all the sin and shame of his past was just weighing on him so heavy. And one day he just blurted it out. He said, here's my past. Here's what I've done. Here's who I was. Here's what my name was. This is all the things I did. I know you wouldn't want to be with me. But this young lady knew the Lord. And God, in growing her in her faith, had recreated in her the same grace that he had given her. And although she was taken aback, she looked at him and said, I want you to know that a person is not defined by the worst thing they've ever done. God defines who a person is. Do you know who God is? Rick and Glenita, if you want to come up here. Then she invited him to church. And he went to a church and he said, I grew up in a church and it was one of those churches where everybody screamed at you for everything you did wrong. And if your shirt was wrinkled, you were going to go to hell. He said, but I went to a church and there was a pastor there and he wore a t-shirt and blue jeans. He said, this pastor told a story from the Bible of a man named David who had become a king. And there was a, 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 a man from the previous dynasty named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, by all rights, should have been killed by David. But David went to him and he adopted him into the family and he loved him. And that pastor said this, he said, that is the story of God's love, that there is a righteous king who you have rebelled against and you have no right to life. But this king pursues you. And in that moment, Josh gave his life to Christ and he now serves as a pastor of a church because God is not done with anybody. If you're sitting here this morning, I want you to know something. God is not done with you. God loves you passionately. And you're sitting here and if you're uncomfortable because you feel shame, that's God telling you that you need him. If you're sitting here like I have at times and all you want me to do is hush and let's sing two verses so we can get out of here and it would probably kill you if we sung three, that's God telling you, I love you. And I want you to be mine. He's paid the price. He sent his son to take his wrath for your sin. All you have to do is receive it. He just asks you to make the choice. Receive it and make him Lord. And you can walk out of here today a different creature with your guilt and your shame and your death cared for because God pursues the broken. Let's stand and worship today. 
thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message, and if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with Him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, RamseyHeightsFamily.online.